a Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On June 13, 1980, in a suburb of Dallas, Texas, a love triangle meets a brutal conclusion. On the receiving end is a woman so badly injured, her face can't be made out. It all started as salacious fun. A married man and a married woman both looking to add a spark to their dull marriages. And they find it. For a while. But secrets have a way of catching up with you, especially when the people you cheat with are your friends. These secrets become jealousy. And jealousy ignites rage. And we all know that love and hate makes us do crazy things. The question in this case is, who snapped? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ugh, Quinn, take a deep breath in. Well, that's okay, sure. I was thinking of more like, you know, I'm giving you a little iced tea, a little lemonade. It's hot. It's a little sticky. It's humid out. I'm taking you to 1978 Lucas, Texas. And it's a bunch of, like, I'm setting the scene here, okay? You're looking out, drinking your sweet tea, and um, there is a bunch of nice Christian folks playing volleyball at the church. It's giving me Top Gun meets Nexium. And you're oh just. Oh my God, that is a summer camp I'd sign up for. You're watching that was the theme. Spike set. <laughs> and uh, what is the third thing you do in volleyball? Sure, there it is. Great. One of the people doing uh, that third thing is Candy Montgomery. <laughs> She's 28 years old. She's kind of a tiny gal with a pointed nose, uh, a high pitched laugh, and a big sort of perm. Um, light brown hair and a perm. Yeah, huge glasses, very 70s. And also in fashion now in Brooklyn. Perms? Glasses, those glasses. But sure, oh, perms shoot. I'm sure are coming back. I don't know why I got so excited. I was like, <laughs> let's go get perms. Okay, anyway, so back to Candy. One, her name is Candy. So sweet. So she's bobbing and weaving all over the court. She's playing her little heart out. Um, I mean, they're a bunch of Christians, so it is a friendly game. I just assume there's probably not a lot of smack talk happening. Um, and the ball goes up, and she sees a chance to hit it, and she rushes it to intercept it, and boom, she runs right into one of her teammates, Alan Gore. Very meet cute. Hello. Here we are. Oh, for sure. Um, and Alan's like a bit older than Candy, right? And she's known Alan. This is not, they're not meeting. She's known him for like nine months. And they have, you know, some things in common, I guess. Uh, volleyball, religion. They sing in the choir together. Well, because of course she sings in the choir. <laughs> that is a not a surprising fact for me. She's got a perm for Christ's sake. Um, in this <laughs> moment, they bump into each other and she's 
really close to him and takes a big old whiff or maybe because she's out of breath because she's running and it's like the pheromones hit her nostrils and she's like my god this guy alan smells sexy yeah i feel like it's like they've known each other she's not necessarily clocked him that way or thought about him that way before and then this moment it's like whoa you cannot argue with science you know um (laughs) And she's like, you know what? Now that I think about it, Alan's like jokes with me a lot, not necessarily the other gals. Is he flirting with me? And weeks after this interaction, Candy is still thinking about Alan, which is a problem because mm, the thing that's going to get in their way is that both Candy and Alan are married. So Candy Montgomery has been married to her husband, Pat, since the early 70s. So at this point, they've been together a couple of years. And not to, like, read into this too much, but the dynamic was that when they first started dating, Candy was actually Pat's secretary at Texas Instruments, which, as far as I know, is the company that makes those weirdly oversized, overpriced calculators that if you're my generation, you definitely... Did you have to get those? Do you remember the name of them? Do you remember the exact name of them? No. I haven't looked it up. Not with a gun in my head. But it's a (laughs) TI-83. I remember it because it was like $99. And it was when you were starting high school, going to algebra, it was like, this is the calc. So Candy has actually been Pat's housewife after they've had their meet cute at TI Industries, at Texas Instrument Industries. Um, And she stays home. She takes care of the kids. She cooks. She cleans. It's giving very 1950s nuclear family Americana. Candy... She doesn't hate her life. She doesn't regret marrying her husband. You know, by all accounts, she really loves him. But for a while now, she's actually been considering having an affair. And it's not that she wants to leave her husband or anything. You know, she just wants to spice up her life just a little bit. Yeah, so that's her perspective. Alan Gore, that is not his perspective. He's not having fantasies about cheating on his wife. He's been married to Betty Gore since 1970. It's been about eight years and... I want to say it's kind of similar to Pat and Candy in the sense that he was a teacher's assistant at Betty's college. That's how they met, which isn't that, you know, secretary Mm. boss, teacher student, kind of similar. Well, there's like a power dynamic there. There's a very clear power dynamic. And actually, my dad was my mom's teacher in college. So you got to trust me when I say it's not a creepy thing. It's a, you know what? It can be great. It's a great way to... um, Get an A without using your calculator to hide information. Yeah, it feels a little like they went to she went to school, she got an MRS degree, but we move on. Um, <laughs> Betty and Alan actually have one kid together. They have a pretty stable life. They don't have a perfect marriage. Who does, right? Alan travels a lot for work, which puts a strain on their marriage. Right, but Betty really loves him and he loves her. So according to an article in Texas Monthly, Candy, who's been secreting the idea that she wants an affair, has now whiffed Alan, and she can't stop thinking about this guy. She's thinking about him while she's doing housework, while she's complaining to her friends about how boring her life is, and this little tickle of an idea of pheromone is now blossoming into a full-on infatuation with him. Isn't that always how that goes? Like that if you like think about in your head that you have a crush on someone enough, then every time you see them, you're like, you're amped up, like your heart is racing and you're like, is he going to touch me? What's going to happen? Are we, are we flirting? Like, 
Yeah. Totally. And also the idea that it's all forbidden. Totally. Because then you sit at home all day and you're like, when am I seeing that guy next? And is it, what's it going to be like? And then she shows up to choir practice and he's like making goofy faces, trying to get her to laugh. And she's like, this guy likes me, man. And I think that that day that she shows up and he's doing that and she's built it up in her head, that's sort of her inspiration to be like, I got to figure this out. I got to see if I can take this thing maybe to another level. She uses choir practice. It's like they met at volleyball. She's going to make her next step at choir practice. Candy sees Alan in the parking lot and she sees him get into his car. And so she runs over to the passenger side and she opens up the door. She pulls out a gun and says, give me all your money. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, that's not true. What if that was the crime? No, 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 absolutely not. (laughs) We're moving on. Um, No, she leans in and asks to talk to him about something that's been bothering her and he invites her to come on into the car so they can sit down and chat a little bit so she gets in the car which feels really intense and you know she's she pulls out her bravery and she tells him that she has kind of feelings for him she has an attraction to him is what she says mm-hmm. and that she's been thinking about him a lot and she's not really like sure what to do about it but she thought maybe you know he'd want to know and then She does not wait for Alan to respond to this. It is, you know, you were kind of joking that there's like this like carjacking that happens. It's more of like a drive-by I have a crush on you like situation where she says her piece and she like bounces. So he's sitting in the car having had this little drive-by of attractions thrown at him and he's left confused. But he goes home, and he starts thinking about it and thinking about it, and he sort of does the, like, do I call? Do I not call? And then he goes, you know what? I'm just not going to do anything, because that is probably a good idea. So Alan does the right thing. He refuses to cheat on his wife. Episode over. If you really enjoyed, here's our sources. (laughs) Just kidding. The idea of an affair had been voiced and it cannot be unsaid. Yeah, I think it's fair to say Alan is really considering the idea. A few months go by and it's now fall of 1978 and this has been weighing on Alan. He and Betty, as usual, they're going through a bit of a boring period, a bit of a lull. Um, She's pregnant. Yeah. (laughs) It's like she's going through her hormones like she's pregnant. No, that's a really good point. That's really fair for Betty. Um, (laughs) Betty, girl, take your space, man. You're growing a freaking human. Well, she's lying on the couch. She's taking her space. She's eating her, if she's anything like me, she's eating her saltines dipped in cream cheese. And she's not really feeling like performing sexually. So Alan's like... Where's our spark, you know? But but he has choices. He doesn't have to go sleep around. Um, maybe instead what he could do is focus on his own marriage and how to make that exciting again. And he has the means to do this. In fact, according to the book Endless Love, 
this thing falls in his lap where he has a bunch of friends who have done this thing called marriage encounters. It's this weekend event that the couples, they all go to a hotel and then they all have an orgy. (laughs) You know what? You're spicing up this podcast today. Carrie's throwing in like extraneous crimes and sexual events that definitely didn't occur, but... If you wade through well, that it, would certainly spice <laughs> up their life. I don't know what to tell you, Quinn. No, this workshop is about coming together and communicating, and I assume there's some trust exercises involved. According to Texas Monthly, he brings this up to Betty, and she's initially defensive about it. She's like, eh, "Why do we need therapy? Like, is there something wrong? Are you unhappy?" You know, I think it bumps her out that he feels like there's something to fix, and. Alan realizes that Betty would be upset if he, you know, dove too far into this topic, so he kind of backs away, and they don't end up talking further about this. But with his marriage encounters plan put on the back burner, Alan decides that, you know, maybe, just maybe, this affair isn't such a bad idea. So he tells Candy that the affair is on. So to sum it up, Candy has been very clear. She wants to have this affair. She wants things to get spicy. Alan is in, sort of. He's like, <laughs> hey, I'm in, but I, you know, this is pending an amicable negotiation yeah. to set up the terms of said affair. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. hot stuff, very sexual. Alan is obviously Ooh. just a, a born natural at this. Yeah, nothing gets me more hot and bothered than a little contract negotiation. Mm. Ooh, 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 oh, spicy. Little foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not enough for Candy. She's not looking for a contract no, spice. No, no. She's like, looking for she a physical wants, spice. She wants, like, ghost pepper, habanero pepper levels, and he's yes. like, give me a poblano any day. This is perfect. <laughs> he's like, I want a bell. I want a red <laughs> bell. <laughs> According to Texas Monthly, on December 12, 1978, Candy books a room at the Continental Inn, which is a you know, pretty straightforward, simple little hotel. It's real close to Alan's office. That's why she picked it. She also made this whole lunch to bring, this picnic lunch to have in this hotel. And it's got sides. It's got salads. It's got desserts. And they're going to eat it all before they do the deed, which seems like a real risk to me. But here we go. She tells Alan her room number, and she sets up their lunch on this gorgeous pine cone patterned bedspread. Which You're picturing it's love. gorgeous. It's it's gorgeous. It's cone. I love a cone themed room. Um, and about this room, it's a little bit tiny. It's like twelve by ten feet. There's brown carpet. And like a big box TV. Um, it's almost like this is like made for like a little illicit tryst. Yeah, just as you said, gorgeous. Just the epitome of luxury, I'm sure. Wait, set the scene of what it looked like, Quinn, because this is going to make everyone really hot and bothered. I just can feel it. Wait, I, now, now I'm going to really get you going because let's talk yeah. about Oof. let's talk about the Tupperware yeah. containers at the scene. Talk Tupperware to me. <laughs> there's there's a lettuce salad, a marinated chicken, some white wine, and some cheesecake. Nothing gets me going than a cheesecake. Yeah, she has a lot going on, Candy. She brought this huge lunch, and she waits for Alan to arrive. So at their agreed-upon time, Alan shows up at the motel room. They have a little lunch, which, if you ask me, is not the best way to start a tryst, but that's just me. You don't ever want to be hungry, but you also don't want to be stuffed right before. Anyway, they eat. 
They do the deed. And they have a little pillow talk, and they shower, and then they go their separate ways. The affair is not an idea anymore. They have broken the seal. It's official. I think that they probably give each other a little fist bump at the end, too. Over the next several months, Candy and Alan rinse and repeat this whole scenario over and over again. Candy makes these kind of extravagant, multi-course lunches, books this motel, they meet, they have sex, they split the expenses down the middle. But I, I do have to say, if Candy is making all this food, she's calling to make the reservation, this is actually just sounding like a very stereotypical male-female ratio of labor to me. Yeah, but it was her idea and she invited him. You oh, know, so okay, yeah. Uh, she's the host. She's the host. She sent the letter in the mail. But this affair becomes about more than just sex and picnics. They become each other's confidants. Yeah, sure. Their relationship is something because they're not just having right. sex. They're chit chatting afterwards, and they're having you know they're lying on the bed. It's intimate, and they're talking to one another. And I think that because there's not the risk of trying to get involved or have a relationship, they're probably speaking very candidly and emotionally about other aspects of their lives. And so I can see where she's really starting to have feelings for him because mm -hmm. maybe if it was just great sex, she'd be able to separate it more, but it's like right. marriage-like sex, I'll call it. <laughs> and marriage-like talking. It's very intimate. And she's, you know what, despite well, everything she said, I think she's catching the feelings. Candy tells Alan that she feels like he's not putting anything into their relationship. She's concerned that Alan is just going through the motions, and she wants him to be either all in or all out. He's really worried about her feelings because he doesn't share them. In fact, for Alan, this whole experience has actually been pretty great for him. He's guilt-free, and he actually doesn't feel any ties emotionally between him and Candy. Yeah, so instead of what they should probably have done at this point when she said, I have feelings, he said, I don't really, it's like they should stop, but instead Alan's like, you know, loving these lunches. Let's let this play out a little longer. Lunches and sex? Yeah, he's having a blast. I mean, he's kind of getting, he's getting the great deal of it. You know, I mean, he's getting the best deal. Well, he gets greedy, and they keep going for a few more months, meeting every two weeks until the spring of 1979. And that is when Betty's going to give birth to their second child that she's pregnant with. So, I don't know, maybe not out of guilt, but maybe just knowing what a newborn is like. He tells her, I'm going to really need some time to support my family and my wife during this time. Uh, I need to give her my attention. So, according to the book Endless Love, Alan doesn't meet with Candy for the affair while Betty and their new daughter get settled at home. And Candy agrees. She understands. She gets it. Um, and she thinks it's going to be good for her, too, because some distance can maybe help sort of resolve these feelings that she's having. Um, and on the plus side, she doesn't have to make Alan a massive lunch and book hotels right. and arrange her schedule around his. So, you know, I guess she wins a little bit, too. But this is where the affair takes a bit of a turn for the worse. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So it's been a month after Betty gave birth to their second child, and now Alan and Candy... They're going to resume. They're going to go at it again because I think Alan, like, he's home with a baby. Um, It's no picnic, folks. And I think he's like, I gave my time. I gave my month. Somebody make me lunch. (laughs) You know, and we all know kids notoriously get less difficult after the first month of their birth. Just nothing but an easy, easy, easy downhill ride after that. It's just the simplest (laughs) thing in the world. You're sleeping well. I mean, the thing is, he comes back to this affair, and now they're still having those um, pillow sort of chats, but they're taking on a little bit more of a resentful vibe. It's like, did Candy's feelings deepen, or is she now resentful at Alan that his marriage took precedence over their relationship, and she's dissatisfied with hers? You know, I mean, there's a lot of questions about why she's feeling this way. Yeah, she's definitely grown a little bit more impatient toward him, a little less understanding. Uh, She's probably also just frustrated that she's putting a lot of effort in, like I cited before. She's doing so much to make this thing happen. She's really uh, facilitating the whole thing, and she isn't getting uh, the pleasure that he is from it. Yeah, it seems like there was a lot of joy in providing for him early on in the affair, and then as soon as he cut ties pretty quickly... I think a lot of us have actually gone through that experience where, like, roll out the red carpet and then you realize, like, it's falling a bit on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it means more to me than you. And and that does build resentment. And one day, they're, like, planning on meeting. I'm sure, you know, Candy has made a delicious lunch. And Alan calls and he's like, you know what? I'm actually not going to make it. My wife wants me to stay home. Yeah. Major feelings of rejection. Major feelings of rejection. And again, probably made a great lunch. That would piss me off too. They have a really um, contentious phone call over it. And Betty's home. Betty wanted him to stay. So she's listening to him in the other room having this very, very long phone call. Yeah, I feel like the cord stretching all around the house and yeah. into the bathroom with the door closed is what I picture. <laughs> and the shower like, running. God, he's, he's like, what's going on? Been on the phone. This is a while. He was just calling church, according to him. Uh, this is bizarre. Um, so she's a little suspicious. Yeah, and Candy is probably none too pleased by this, but she really doesn't have any other choice but to just let it go because... They're just there to have sex, nothing more. It seems like this relationship is becoming more trouble than it's worth. 
yeah, um, more work than play at this point. And that all comes to a head when Betty starts to fall into a depression. I mean, she's just given birth. Her hormones are raging. And I think anyone who's had a kid can probably understand your relationship with your body changes. And I think it's safe to say that maybe there's some postpartum depression happening. Plus, I think she has a little pregnancy scare a few weeks after she gives birth where she misses her period. And she thinks she's going to have to go through another pregnancy, which, wow, I can't imagine that. That would be very tough. Yeah, and remember, wasn't he just a few months ago being like, should we go to marriage counseling? Which, again, wasn't like a very common thing to request. So all of this, having just had the baby, obviously I don't picture Alan being like the most helpful. Um, And I just think the the marriage, the weight of that, the weight of having just had this baby, there's some postpartum there. This is too much. And she feels depressed. She needs help. So she gets on some medication Alan then is like, whoa, this is maybe my fault. I feel a little bit guilty. I feel a lot guilty. Um, you know what? Maybe maybe this whole thing was was a mistake. And so Alan and Betty, they sort of start to work together on their relationship. They really put in the effort. Betty finally agrees to go to that marriage encounters workshop. And I think we can all learn a valuable lesson from this, which is just have an affair. It will solve all your marital problems. (laughs) No, they go to this workshop and they, they really find their way back together, right? It's like they get in sync. They really kind of figure out how to actually communicate with one another and they tell each other secrets that they never said out loud. They're really rebuilding intimacy at this marriage encounter workshop and it seems to really revitalize their relationship. And so he ends up calling off the affair. Listen, Candy isn't the one calling this off. I think it hurts her feelings, right? I mean, it bruises her ego for sure. And I think a little bit, it bruises her heart. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's not like um, that's over and then that's out of sight, out of mind. She's still going to see Alan at the church, at choir practice. Uh, She's still playing volleyball with him. And instead of it being that feeling we talked about at the beginning where every time she sees him, it's kind of like that fun, excited, I have a secret feeling – It's just this total bummer that makes her feel embarrassed and rejected and sad. Yeah, and I think it'd be one thing if she had this affair and was able to close the door, but like she's seeing Alan and Betty all around town because this is a small town. And to make matters even more delicate, these two couples, they actually have kids around the same age and their kids, they hang out together. Their kids met at church and they play together and they go to vacation Bible school together. Like they are unfortunately like extremely together. Right. And now like it's like both families hanging out with each other, which sounds crazy. Like I just can't, I don't know what kind of actor Candy is or Alan, but this is a lot. Like the couples are hanging out, their kids are hanging out and you have to like play it super cool. I feel like there are askance looks or glances or complete avoidance of eye contact. And Betty already has suspicions that something was going on with Alan when he had that, like, nine-hour church phone call. So I feel like, you know, her antenna are up. This is dangerous. Yeah, but we don't know if she ever knows anything, right? But something definitely changes. Yeah, Something does. On June 13th, 1980, we go 
from zero to 100 with no explanation. Because on that night, Betty Gore is found dead. Yeah, so how do we get from this arguably low-stakes affair to an amical breakup to a then gruesome crime scene? Like, what the hell happened that night? Well, there is, there's a lot of hearsay. So let's just start with what we know for sure. On the afternoon of June 13th, 1980, Alan Gore leaves for St. Paul, Minnesota on a business trip. And at the airport, he calls Betty before he takes off and after he lands, but she doesn't answer either time. He's a little worried, um, but he doesn't call again until that evening when he gets to his hotel. And again, he calls home, no answer. Now, this is weird. So Alan then calls their neighbor, Richard Parker, and he's like, hey, Richard, can you do me a favor? Can you go over to my house and go knock on the door? And Richard says, yes. So he goes over to their house. All of the lights are on. The cars are all there. And he knocks on the door, but nobody answers. And so he relays this to Alan, and Alan's pretty worried about that, and he doesn't know what to do. So impulsively, he calls, I guess, the person he's closest to if Betty doesn't pick up, Candy. And Candy is actually taking care of his kid because his daughter slept over at Candy's house that night. So he asks Candy if she's seen Betty that day. And Candy's like, yeah, actually I did. I I picked up a swimsuit for your daughter that morning and Betty seemed totally fine. She says that maybe Betty went out, which is why she wasn't answering the phone or the door. And so Candy then offers to go to their house to check on Betty. And Alan says, no, 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 don't worry about it. I'm good. He declines. Right. Well, she's a drive away and he's, you know, got the neighbor right there. But he, he's, he is desperate to figure out what's going on because he's like, something happened. This is not Betty. This isn't making sense. And so he goes back to that neighbor and he's like, I know I asked you to knock before. Um, can you break in? Can you physically break into my house? Which I feel like the neighbor is like, um, <laughs> It's a kind of a tall order, kind of strange, but I'm sure he hears the panic on Alan's end and is like, okay. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. So three of his neighbors, they go together and they're trying to pry open their windows, but they quickly realize that the front door is actually unlocked. So Yahtzee, we got in. Maybe they should have tried that first, but I wasn't there. I can't attest to that. Um, So the three neighbors then walk into the house, and immediately they hear Betty's baby crying in the other room. And that's so scary. That's so So creepy. So scary. They start to search the house for Betty, and they're very anxious. I mean, this is such a, a strange scene to come upon, and she is not in the living room, not in the bedroom, not in the kitchen not in the dining room. One of them passes by a bathroom while they're looking and notices like a cake-like substance on the tile and just clocks it and just thinks, this is not good. They go into the baby's room and it looks like this poor sweet baby has just been wailing for hours, just unattended, like like clearly left there. Her diaper hasn't been changed all day. It's so upsetting to come upon this. If they weren't already so worried, They are very panicked now, and one of them calls the police right away. Like, he walks out and is like, this is bad news. This is bad. This is bad. And then one of them turns a corner, discovers Betty, and out of his mouth, the first thing he says is, oh, my God, don't go any further. He finds Betty Gore in the utility room. She's sprawled on the floor in a pool of her own blood. Blood is spattered everywhere. 
all over the walls, all over her. At first glance, it looks like she's been shot, but they aren't going to investigate any further. This is their neighbor. This is their friend. They can't stand to look at her. So they shut the utility room door. And I think they're just standing there in complete shock, shock. Uh, trying to decide what to do next. And before they can decide, the house phone rings, and it's Alan. And they have to tell him what they have found. After Alan hears about Betty's death, he doesn't know what to do. He's out of town. So he calls Candy once again, and he tells her what happened. And he is absolutely inconsolable. Of course he is. From what he's heard, um, it seems like Betty might have shot herself. But that doesn't seem to make any sense to him. It's like things were going well between the two of them. She was she was getting better, right? I mean, he knows she had been depressed, but again, she was getting better. Yeah, she was on medication. They had gone to, and worked on their marriage. Like things were looking up for them. And while he's in the midst of, of trying to think about all this, Candy is the one that's there to console him. He waits for the police to arrive on the scene so that hopefully they can shed more light on what might have taken place during Betty's final moments. And the police get there, and it is a very quick realization that this was not, in fact, a suicide. Mm -hmm. This was not a gunshot wound. Um, Betty was not killed with a gun, but rather she was killed with an axe, and it's laying right next to her body. And Betty's body is covered in axe wounds. Half of her face is completely gone. The police estimate she was struck 41 times, and that is some Lizzie Borden shit. This is, this is not a robbery, you know? This is personal. This yeah. is rage. Yes, it is personal, because no one would do that. If 41? You did, like, it's just no. 41 times. It screams personal, and that the person who killed her knew the victim. The police are able to investigate around the house, and they find burnt coffee and the morning newspaper out in the kitchen. So they're able to sort of put a time that Betty was killed earlier in the day. And it also looks like the shower had been used. Maybe that was what the assailant did to wash off some blood. They also find a bloody fingerprint and footprints left by a smaller sized foot. So it's like a small flip-flop, which clearly do not belong to Alan, so they're able to rule him out as a suspect. Once they find all that they can in the house, the police start to canvas the neighborhood asking anyone if they saw anything unusual that morning. And only one person saw anything, and it's the child of one of their neighbors, a five-year-old, which normally, obviously, that wouldn't be helpful, but the five-year-old actually knew the person that they saw knocking on the door of the house and going in that morning. And it was none other than Candy Montgomery. Why was Candy at this house? Well, according to Candy, she came to Betty's house because she needed clothes for Betty's daughter because she was planning on letting her stay over the night at her house. Only Betty and Candy can possibly know what followed when she came to get the clothing. When the police arrived to question her, she tells them, yeah, I did visit Betty, but it was just to pick up this swimsuit, and then I left. And she's so sincere. The police really do believe her, um, and they have no reason to suspect a housewife from the neighborhood like Candy would have been capable of this brutal axe attack. 
Yeah, and Candy's a pretty well-known person around town. I mean, she teaches the kids vacation Bible school. Like, she is she is a well-to-do member of the community. And, of course, the police do not know what we know, which is this affair that Candy and Alan had, right? So a couple of days pass, and Alan is sitting there trying to figure out who could have possibly done this to his wife, and he realizes that he has not been totally honest and transparent with the police. And in order to find out who did this, he needs to be. So he calls the police and tells them that there's something he hasn't told them. He informs them that he and Candy have been having an affair that just ended seven months ago. And for the police, suddenly this innocent housewife may have motive and they move quickly to arrest Candy. Yeah, it couldn't have been a question when he informed them of the affair, right? It's like, oh, the woman who was there that morning that was having an affair with the husband. Like, it feels, it, yeah, I think there had to is, be no, yeah. Is, is doing that in his own mind. I think he's saying, they don't know who did this. Do they have all the information? Not only that, but it wouldn't look great for Alan to have the police mm-hmm. later find out about this affair and be like, why didn't you On tell us own, this? Yeah. He becomes a little more suspect, uh, flip-flops or not. I mean, Quinn, you said it before, but the only people who know what happened that morning and that day for sure are Betty and Candy. And one is dead. So all we have is Candy's story. Yeah, that's why we haven't really uh, dove into this part yet, because we'd love to tell you, and here's what happened that day, but to be very clear, we have one story. It is Candy's side of the story, and it's not what you might expect. So Candy obviously denies killing Betty Gore. She denies it from the very beginning, but the police are able to match the bloody fingerprint found at the scene of the crime to Candy. They also have the footprints and the size of the shoe that matches Candy's. Um, They even have Candy at the house that morning of Betty's death. It's really good evidence. And they have a really strong motive. It's really strong in their case against her. Yeah. And uh, Candy's defense lawyer, Don Crowder, knows that. And so he goes into court that first day and he goes in rather theatrically and stands up in front of the jury and he stomps his foot on the ground and everyone kind of looks at him and he says to the judge and the jury, Candace Montgomery killed Betty Gore. She did so with an axe. She did so in self-defense. She didn't want to hit Betty 15 times with a three-foot poleaxe. She had to. So... During this opening statement, Candy is sitting in the defendant's chair and she is quietly crying. And I'm sure she's wearing the most conservative outfit, like the outfit she wears to teach vacation Bible school. Very high collar. The highest of collars. The higher the collar, the closer God. Um, And he tells the jurors at this point, he tells them about Candy's affair with Alan. And then he informs them, listen... This sin is not what she's on trial for, right? Um, She's on trial for the murder of Betty Gore, not the affair, and that Candy will have to answer for her behavior in all aspects when she takes the stand. Right. And before this trial, Candy was very hesitant uh, to recount Mm -hmm. the events of that day. Uh, She couldn't get herself to tell her lawyers what happened. So they were like, you know what? This is unorthodox. Let's try something new. Let's try hypnosis. And they hypnotize her to try and unlock her memory of what went on that day. But while they're hypnotizing her, it has kind of this uh, 
unexpected effect of actually bringing up other memories for Candy, memories uh, that she unlocks from her childhood. And in one of these memories that she seems very sort of fixated and bothered by, she's in a great deal of pain, and her mother is there, and she shushes her. She says, shh. And eventually this memory will come into play, but through hypnosis, they they get these childhood memories that come to light, and they also eventually are able to unlock Candy's memory of that day and of Betty's death. It's wild to me that they used hypnosis to access her memories, Mm -hmm. and then she's also taking the stand. That, to me, those two separate facts are really fascinating to me. Because, again, you do not have to take the stand in your own defense. And I think it is a really risky thing to take the stand in your own defense. Because as a defendant, you are already, you know, accused of this crime. Yeah. And so everything you do is going to be judged, right? I mean, like with a fine-tooth calm. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, it goes without saying, I think we take her story with a grain of salt. Because it's the only account we have because the other person is gone. Candy takes the stand and she is calm, collected, articulate, intelligent. She's so good. She's so put together and Mm -hmm. precise with her words that it almost proves to be a bit of a problem for her lawyer because she sounds cold and rehearsed. He asks her to recount the events of that day and this is what she says. The morning of Friday, June 13th, 1980, Candy knocks on the door of Betty's house and she's going there to ask for a swimsuit for Betty's daughter. And she says that Betty's daughter wants to stay the night at her house and she just wants to ask Betty's permission because it's totally cool with Candy. Right. And so Betty's like, sure, and invites Candy in, offers her a cup of coffee. We know there was coffee brewed that morning, leads her into the living room. They sit down across from each other, and there's, um, you know, a kid's playpen in the room, a bunch of toys around, and Betty gets this weird look in her eye and asks Candy in that moment, flat out, no buildup, are you having an affair with Alan? And, like, knee-jerk reaction, Candy's like, no, like, denies it. But that doesn't seem to affect Betty's suspicions, right? Mm -hmm. It's like Betty knows something happened. And so then she asks, Candy, have you ever had an affair with Alan? And this is when Candy admits it. She apologizes and Betty doesn't seem to react. And then Betty tells Candy to stay right there and she gets up and goes to the other room. And when she comes back from that room, she has an ax. She leans it up against the wall and says to Candy, it's time to leave. She says, I don't want to see you ever again, and I don't want Alan to see you ever again. Candy is taken aback, and she's going to leave, but she first asks for the swimsuit for her daughter. So Betty leads her into the utility room and gets one from the washer, and Candy's about to leave, and she sees pain in Betty's eyes. It is betrayal, it is deceit, it is hurt. And in that moment, Candy feels awful. She pities her. She puts her hand on Betty's arm and she says, I'm so sorry. But just this touching Betty, she's not in a place to get touched by this woman and it sends her into a rage. And she shoves Candy backward into the utility room and she grabs that ax 
that's leaned up against the wall and she yells at Candy, you can't have him. And she starts to approach her holding the ax. The two women then fight over the grip of the ax and Candy pleads with Betty, please stop. And Betty replies, I've got to kill you. And remember, this is Candy's telling of the story. They fight over control of the weapon. Betty hits Candy in the head with the flat of the axe. She gains control. And Betty lifts this axe high in the air as though she's going to kill Candy, as though she's going to bring this axe down on her. And as the axe falls, Candy sees this. She jumps to the side and it misses her, but the axe bounces against the linoleum and it hits her toe. Candy grabs the head of the axe and holds it firmly so that Betty can't take another swing at her. So now they've both, it's this tug of war of the axe right now. And Candy stops pleading and now becomes sort of angry. And this fight is just like this wrestling match. Who's gonna get the axe? And in turn, who's going to survive? survive? And with a good push, Candy shoves the axe against Betty and knocks her against the freezer. So Candy is in control of the axe right now. And without hesitation, Candy brings the axe up and she brings it down on the back of Betty's head. And blood starts gushing out. And Candy is certain that it's an axe. This is gonna kill her. Betty has to be dead. So she just rushes for the door to escape. But here's the thing, Betty isn't dead. She's still alive. And before Candy can get out of the house, Betty's behind her, shoving her body against the door. And she's stopping Candy from leaving. And she begs Betty, please let me leave. But Betty won't let her. And even as Betty is losing blood extraordinarily fast, the two of them wrestle to the floor of the utility room once again. The axe is going back and forth between them until Betty finally gets control of the axe and she raises it in a swing. But she's lost a lot of blood. She's been hit in the head with an axe. She's getting very weak and Candy is able to kick Betty's legs out from under her and Betty falls on the floor. Candy grabs the axe and both their hands are on the handle now. And Candy is trying again to leave, begging Betty to just let her go. And Betty, at this moment, puts a finger to her mouth and hisses, and shushes Candy. A switch flips in Candy. This totally sets Candy off. She stands up and she swings that ax down on Betty's body 40 more times. In the courtroom, I mean, I'm sure you could hear a pin drop. They are sitting, listening to this woman this woman who is a teacher in their community, this woman who goes to church every Sunday and sings in the choir, and she is recounting this day in front of them. Tears are streaming down her face. Candy's attorney lifts an ax and holds it up in front of her and asks, you killed her with this ax right here, didn't you? And Candy breaks down in tears and says, yes. When the defense finishes questioning Candy Montgomery, you can hear a pin drop in the room. 
One of the jurors is dabbing her eyes. Another juror looks skeptical and unbelieving. Yeah, I mean, it must be... I, I, everyone, I feel like, would also be looking at each other to be like, what are you, are you buying this? The prosecution stands up to cross-examine Candy, and her story remains exactly the same. They can't find any cracks or inconsistencies. In fact, when they cross-examine her, she actually ends up providing more details. Um, so... The whole situation is just very clear to her. And she leaves the stand with her story intact and heard. It's the only story that we have of what happened. Even it is from the person who killed Betty Gore and has the most to gain from this testimony. Yeah, I mean, I understand why anyone would be skeptical of of this turn of events. And I think the jurors were skeptical. The prosecution points out that use of deadly force to protect yourself is only legal when you can't retreat, and Candy should have retreated. Um, you know, if she saw an axe, if she saw Betty bring the axe in the room and she felt scared, she should have run. They also point to the testimony of doctors that say that one blow with an axe to the head would have knocked Betty out, but yeah. her body is suggesting there have been 41 swings of this axe, and... They say you're not going to swing an axe 41 times and not know what you're doing. But Candy's testimony explains why she couldn't leave. It explains that Betty wasn't knocked unconscious by this blow to the axe. And maybe by some freak situation, she was able to move and hold an axe. And Candy doesn't shy away from the excessive brutality of her behavior. So she she acknowledges it. Like she's she's looking everybody in the eye and saying, and then I swung it at her again, and you go, oh, now I I don't know what to think because you're being so honest? Question mark, you know? And on October 29th, 1980, the jury goes into deliberation and they are in there for three hours and 20 minutes, and they find Candy Montgomery not guilty by reason of self-defense. I mean, she she may have been not guilty, but I think in the court of public opinion, especially in her small community, I don't think they felt it was vindication. Yeah, she doesn't stay there, does she? No. In fact, as she's leaving the trial, people are chanting murderer at her as she left. She, She will eventually move to Georgia and, you know, her and Pat do get divorced. Well, that was a Um, long time coming. I tell you what, (laughs) that might have solved the whole thing if they'd just done that ages ago. It's so hard to wrap your mind around it because obviously a person was brutally killed. Yeah. Brutally killed. And we don't have all the forensic evidence that, you know, was presented, right? So, you know, does the forensic evidence support this? I mean, it's shocking to me to understand the amount of blood that was at that home. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been everywhere? The luminol test must have been lit up. Let yeah, me tell you, like, tech. and did Candy after this fact, Candy then cleaned the whole house and keep in mind, I mean, lest we forget there was a child there the whole time crying. I mean, that's the part that stays with me is, uh, can we charge her for that? Leaving a baby all day, knowing that there was no one there that was going to take care of that baby. And she leaves and she, she has, she goes home, you know, she f- has time to file her shoes or whatever. She has time to bandage her toe Sand and down. all these things I mean, and I, she's getting calls from out. this baby is home alone I, I'm outraged at that it's crazy to me that Alan called her 
And you wonder when Candy goes, do you want me to go over there? Was she trying to make up for that? I got to say, even though, um, you know, I don't buy necessarily Candy's version of events, I also have to point out what's tricky as you go, well, it definitely doesn't seem super premeditated. I don't think that if you decided you wanted to kill Betty, I don't believe that your way to do it was to go over to her house in the middle of the while, day yeah. while you're, while her kids at your house having a sleepover yeah. and kill her with her own axe. Yeah, I also, you know, they did when, when Candy was arrested for this, they did do a strip search and they found that there were a lot of bruising on her body. And I'm not saying that corroborates her self-defense story, um, but we do have the injury of the toe and then the bruises all over her body. And so should we talk a little bit about what's happened to to the, the survivors? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting that um, – so Candy goes by her maiden name now. Um, and what Candy's up to these days is uh, she actually works as a mental health therapist. A mental health therapist? Yep. I mm-hmm. would swipe and left on that. People, I don't yeah. think that's for yeah. me. It's What's so crazy to me about it is – their work focuses on teens and adults with depression. And to me, understanding Betty Gore suffered from depression, it feels like adding insult to injury to me. It's like this woman was dealing with depression and you made an effort to sleep with her husband. And it wasn't that like it was mutual attraction. It was like very much a pitch. It was very much like Please sleep with me. And afterwards, you're asserting that you are qualified to give people any kind of mental assistance. I mean, that alone, the hubris there, I'm just like, I'm, or the, the, um, the self sort of deceit that's going on. Yeah. It's so sad. I mean, this story, it's like there are losers literally everywhere, everywhere. No wins, except maybe Candy. Candy did win, but... Again, I don't I, I don't think that's a big win. I mean, she was chased out of town, and here we are telling her story. So it's something that I'm sure is following her forever. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing, because it might just be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. A series of articles in Texas Monthly entitled Love and Death in Silicon Prairie by Jim Atkinson and John Bloom and their book, Evidence of Love. An article from UPI entitled Defendant Candace Montgomery Testifies in Axe Murder of Ex-Lover's Wife. An article in the Wichita Eagle entitled Murder of Betty Gore Can't Explain Unexplainable and reporting from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Cass is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Network, LLC. All rights reserved. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.